Welcome everybody to the better late than never edition of one question for every fight for UFC 289. I am E. Spencer Kite, your friendly neighborhood Spencer man. Jumping in, it is 9.15 on Wednesday, June 7th, and I am just getting behind the microphone because I just got home about an hour ago from Vancouver, having spent the day in at the Fighter Hotel for Media Day. Notice I said Fighter Hotel and not where it is because I'm not telling you folks where it is because you're not supposed to be hanging out at the Fighter Hotel bothering people for pictures. Also, I'm tired of taking pictures for the great John Gooden. I got to become John's personal photographer this afternoon as fans repeatedly walked up and said, are you John Gooden? To which the lovely gentleman from England said, of course. How's it going? And, and wanted to have conversations with all of these people. John Gooden is good people. And I was happy to take pictures for him. But I am also happy to sit down here and dive into this fight card. As I said in the show notes, being around these athletes these last couple days has really just heightened my excitement for Saturday. I was already pumped up. I was already looking forward to this card. I think it is better than a lot of people either recognize or want to allow, not necessarily from a name value perspective, but if you know these athletes, if you know these pairings, then you understand that we are in line for some really entertaining fights on Saturday. And we're going to just start with the main event, the women's bantamweight title, Amanda Nunes versus Irene Aldana. My question is simply, have the stars aligned for Irene Aldana? I got the chance to speak to her last week for a story that is up now on the UFC website. And as we were speaking, she told me a story about she always believed for a number of years that when a black cat came into her life. So let me, let me start where this deserves to be started. The first thing she said to me was, so I'm a cat person, which then became the only thing that stuck in my brain as she continued to talk. And I will now let you know that Irina Aldana has nine cats. So if you want to call her a cat lady, by all means, but she can kick your ass. So I wouldn't. Back to the story. She said, listen, I always thought, I always felt, I always knew that when a black cat entered my life, that would be when I fight for the bantamweight title. And about two weeks before she got the call from McMaynard that her fight with Raquel Pennington needed to be postponed because they needed her to fight for the bantamweight title, a black cat came into her life. And this isn't a, like I went out and bought myself a black cat. This is stray cats, random roaming around cats come into her life and she adopts them. And this little black cat came into her life. Now, if you add on top of that, that already this year in 2023, Brandon Moreno unified the flyweight titles. Yair Rodriguez won the interim featherweight title. And Aldana's longtime training partner and close friend, Alexa Grasso, defeated Valentina Shevchenko for the flyweight title. This year has already felt like the year of, of Mexican fighters in the UFC. And here is Aldana with a somewhat short notice opportunity to become the fourth fighter this year to win the title. And it just feels from every little piece of this that if there is such thing as the stars aligning and the cosmic forces coming together, it feels like this could be it. She is a dangerous threat. We all know that. We've all seen it. 
She has won each of her last two fights by stoppage, three of her last four by stoppage, four of her last five overall. She defeated Macy Chasson last time out with a upkick to the liver, essentially. A third round from her back, kicked Chasson in the guts, got the stoppage. Now, a lot of people will say that's a fluke, that never going to happen again. But all we can do is actually play the results. And at the end of the day, Irene Aldana finished that fight. She finished the fight before that against Yana Santos. She knocked Ketlin Vieira out cold a few fights before that. And the one sort of knock against her, the one blemish as of late, is a loss to Holly Holm that came just a few weeks after getting cleared from COVID and is just one of those situations that it feels that if you ran it back now, potentially you get a different result. The interesting piece of this in the whole have the stars aligned is that Irina Aldana is fighting the greatest female fighter of all time and one of the best, to me, fighters full stop of all time, Amanda Nunes, who has, again, because she defeated Juliana Pena, beaten every single woman to hold the bantamweight title. She is in the record books many times over. And in speaking to her this week and in speaking to her prior to, I think, the last seven or eight fights, she feels and sounds and looks way more dialed in this time around. So it could be a situation where all the cosmic forces are coming together to propel, to propel Irene Aldana forward into this opportunity. But there stands the goat who has no interest in turning over her title. Co-main event, Charles Oliveira, Benil Dariush, three rounds in the lightweight division. My question here is whether Charles Oliveira has, has gotten over the fight with Islam Mahashev. So I ask this, and this is the question that's in my head, because anybody that has watched Oliveira's media over the last, since that fight, really, knows that he's kind of just opted to move on. He's talked about not watching the fight. He said all the things about that wasn't me and I needed a break and I took a break and I got away from it and I hadn't really had a slowdown in a while. And all of that is true. But I personally feel that there's a lot of value and a lot of catharsis that comes from watching and sitting through and going through those bad moments. That's where growth and development and understanding comes from. That's where sorting out what went wrong and actually processing different things comes from. I fully understand chalking that night up to, I didn't lock in, he's dangerous, but that wasn't me, and I'm going to show the real me on Saturday. His team, members of his team, the Shoots Box Diego Lima team, are still walking around this week in the great shirts that say the champion has a name and Charles Oliveira on the back. I get it. But to me, there's also a little bit of that, like, you need to grab reality here. You need to understand and grasp where we actually are. And that is the champion has a name and it's Islam Mahashev. And the former champion is now facing a guy in Benil Daryush on an eight fight winning streak who said today at media day that those guys that 
Charles beat when he won the title and successfully defended the title, or Justin Gaethje wasn't successfully defended the title, but you understand what I mean, were guys that were afraid to go to the ground with him. And when you look at Mahashev, excuse me, and you look at Dariush, those dudes aren't afraid to go to the ground with him. That's where they're best. That's where their strength is. Benil's quote today at Media Day, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, because I don't have the quote in front of me, was that's where I'm strongest. That's where I've, that's where I started. That's where I'm supposed to be my best. So if I get the opportunity to get down there into a control position, into an advantageous position on a guy that's hurt, of course I'm going and I can beat him there. And I just wonder if there's a little bit of a residual hangover and, and maybe even overconfidence with Oliveira simply from chalking up that loss to, ah, it wasn't my night and I wasn't there and I'll show them the next time around. Because I don't think that that night goes any different if we get locked in, dialed in, fully focused Charles Oliveira. That night is about Islam Mahashev being the best lightweight on the planet and taking advantage of spots that previous opponents didn't take advantage of. Charles Oliveira during this run has had the luxury of knowing if I get hurt and dropped, I have the opportunity to either rest up on the ground because these guys don't want to come with me, right? We talked about it during those fights. He gets himself essentially a five count, a standing eight count in the cage because nobody wants to come to the ground with him. And if they do, he's the vastly superior grappler. And there's good possibility that he's going to threaten something from his back or sweep and get into an advantageous position. That wasn't happening with Mahashev, who just walked in there and understood, I'm on par with this guy, if not significantly better, and I'm just going to dominate him. But Neil Daryush thinks the same thing. And if Charles Oliveira looks at this fight simply as, I had an off night last time, I'm going to change that this time around he could be making a really bad mistake. Next up in the welterweight division, Mike Malott versus Adam Fugit, which is going to be a very fun fight. The thing I want to know here, the thing that's at the front of my brain is, can Mike Malott be the guy for Canada right now? That maybe sounds like an odd question to some people, given that Mike Malott has had two fights in the UFC, and he's 31 years old, and he's fighting a guy in Adam Fugit who is dangerous, but nowhere near the top 15 at this point. But what I will say, and and I asked Mike about this at Media Day today, is that he is significantly more experienced than his 9-1-1 record lets on and indicates. He is more dangerous, and there is more depth to his game then the nine first round finishes, almost all of them by some form of, of TKO or KO indicate about his game. And I kind of think that this is a spot where he has the opportunity to show maybe not that he can be the guy, but that there's the possibility of him being the guy. This feels to me like a bit of an audition. For Mike Malott, middle of the pay-per-view, last Canadian to get into the cage, coming off consecutive first-round finishes, comes out this week, 
He's getting a full send bump from those guys. The Nelk boys have been bigging him up and are coming out apparently on Saturday to, to be there and support Mike as he walks to the cage and all of those things. Those things mean something. He is dialed in, locked in, looking forward to this in a way that that kind of really does position him as if things go well, he is somebody we are going to see, at least in Canada, get a real push and get a real opportunity. Now, that may not mean that next time out, he's headlining somewhere in a fight night show in Canada, but it could mean that either the next time they come to Canada, he's in a similar position on a pay-per-view, if that's what comes, or he's in the co-main event of a fight night show somewhere, ideally Ontario. If they go to Ontario early next year, at some point, Mike Malott should very well be on there coming from the greater Hamilton area, as I do myself. I think he is the kind of guy that at 31, but with very limited miles on his tires, can go on a bit of a run. I don't think Adam Fugit is necessarily the test that gives us the best understanding of where he fits and where he can get to, but it's another good test. It's another good opportunity against a guy that's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, got a little bit of sandpaper to him. They're going to get after it in the first round from Jump Street on Saturday. I don't think it goes beyond five minutes. I think they go out there and go rock them, sock them robots until somebody's done. But I really am curious to see if Mike Malott can have a real breakthrough moment here in Canada that propels him to being sort of the, the lead horse for this next run of Canadian fighters competing this weekend and coming along in general. Move to the featherweight division, Dan Ige versus birthday boy today, Nate Landwehr. And my question here is, is Nate Landwehr ready for this kind of step? Is he ready for this kind of test? So the last couple fights for Nate the Train have been great, have been successful. Three straight, three straight wins, pair of submissions on either side of that bonkers fest with David Onama back last summer in San Diego. Choked out Austin Lingo in the second round in March. Cut a great promo. Really a guy that is, is riding a crest right now of attention, of recognition. He's got a ton of experience. 17-4 and four overall, as he said today. And as you can tell by looking at his record, either on Topology or Wikipedia, he's a dude that's been in there and fought championship championship fights over in Russia against Russians. There's not a lot that's going to phase this dude. If you ever see or hear or listen to Nate Landwehr, this ain't somebody that's gonna, that, that scares easy, that, that is gonna tuck tail and run. This is a dude that's going to get out there and want to punch you in the face and, and dance with you. And I'm really curious to see if he's ready to get in there with Dan Ige. I think a lot of people undersell Dan Ige. I think a lot of people play the results with Danny Gay, and they look at the three-fight losing streak. They look at four losses in five fights. They look at split decision against Edson Barbosa and Mursad Bektik, that if they go the other way, it's certainly a different-looking resume right now. But one, those fights didn't go the other way. Danny Gay was in there 
thick and thin against both of those guys and came out on the happy side of those verdicts. So all you can do is play them as victories. And if you're going to fault a dude for losing to Calvin Cater, Chan Sung Jung, Josh Emmett, and Mavsar Ivloyev all by decision, then you're holding people to a crazy standard because each one of those dudes is in the top 10 in the featherweight division. And Dan Ige went the distance with each of them. Main event with Calvin Cater, main event with Chan Sung Jung, three rounds with Emmett, three rounds with Ivloyev. None of them could get him out of there. And then he rebounded after that with a second round stoppage win over Damon Jackson, a beautiful knockout win over Gavin Tucker in there after the cater loss. Danny is a dude that is just a professional fighter. And I mean that in the sense of everything he does is towards this goal is towards this craft. He is a every bit of work, every step that needs to be taken. There is no stone left unturned. And even though he's just two and four in his last six, he might be the best fighter in the UFC that's two and four in his last six. Like, he's the real deal. And he's a step up for Nate Landwehr, who, for all the success he's had, and I don't say this as a means of diminishing the guys he's beaten, but who's the best win in there? Is it Darren Elkins? Is it Ludovic Klein? Is it Onama? Is it Austin Lingo? I'm not sure. He's somebody that's willing to to play with fire. And I think, as everybody does, that he goes out there on Saturday and looks to get into a fistfight with Dan Ige. I want to know if he's ready for that, for that kind of smoke. Because I know Dan Ige is going to be in there. He's going to tuck his chin. He's going to be technical. He's going to be quick. He's going to be clean. And if Nate Landwehr leaves himself open, Dan Ige will walk one off and go celebrate and get himself another victory. Main card opener in the middleweight division, Marc-Andre Barrio and Eric Anders. My question for this one is, has Anders checked out a little bit? And here's what I mean. In the last kind of lead up to this, after the last fight, Eric Anders has talked about, I think I got five left. I think I got maybe five left. And he's he's looking forward to the next stage of things. And I don't mean in a like fondly can't wait to retire because he's got all of these plans. I mean like he's mapping it out and he's looking down the road. He's got other things. He said today at Media Day, I could call it now and I'm good. Made his acting debut last year in, in season five of Cobra Kai. He's done well for himself throughout his career in terms of taking care of all the things he needs to take care of. And he's looking forward to being a father and he's already a father. That, that sounds weird. What I mean is he's looking forward to being around and home and even more present than he is now where he's leaving home to go and do camps this time around at the MMA lab. And I just wonder, I'm not usually one to really buy into and get into the, like the minute you start talking about retirement, because I do think there is a lot of value to understanding and having a blueprint and thinking forward to, I can't do this forever, so what's next? But what I do wonder is when you start putting dates on it and when you start putting limits on it, 
do you check out a little bit? Do you start looking at these as, well, this is my fifth last fight and I've only got four more after this rather than I've got this French Canadian dude that's going to come after me from minute one who has been calling me out for four years and desperately wanted this fight for some reason. And I got to deal with him. I don't necessarily think Eric Anders is, is fully checked out and is just like phoning it in. That's not what I'm saying at all. But for a guy that has struggled at times with being hesitant to pull the trigger, with not getting his offense off, with being sort of stuck in the mud a little bit in some of these fights, to starting to think about the end of the line is, is coming and I can see the finish line on the horizon really impact the way you fight. Now, maybe it does for the better. Maybe it sends him in there with like, I got five left. We're going to have as much fun as humanly possible. And I'm going to take it to Marc-Andre Barrio on Saturday. Could very well be the case. But I'm just curious. I'm just intrigued to see if it, it's the other side of that. To see if it's the other way. And there's a little bit of, oh man, I think Eric Anders has one foot. Not necessarily out the door. But he's starting to walk towards the door. And it doesn't work out well for him on Saturday. We stick in the middleweight division and move to the prelims, which wrap with Nasruddin Imavov versus Chris Curtis. My question here is, can Imavov get the win that he needs to really right the ship? So coming into this year, Imavov was someone that I included on my list of sort of top prospects, top emerging talents in the UFC over on a piece that ran on OSDB sports towards the start of the year, because I felt like at 27 years old, then 28 years old. Now he was somebody that on a three fight winning streak, having shown a bunch of good things was going to be in a position and was in a position to get a good win that really propelled him forward. Originally matched up in the first main event of the year against Calvin Gastelum. Gastelum then gets hurt. Sean Strickland tags in. We do the fight at 205. Strickland gets a victory. Nasruddin Imamov catches a loss, has to reset. And the guy he gets to reset against is Sean Strickland's teammate, Chris Curtis, who has already done the like fight prep for Imamov because he's watched tape with and for Sean Strickland to help him prepare. And so it's not a new uptake. It's not a new loading process. This is a guy I'm familiar with. And I feel like Imavov is in that point, in that zone right now, that young fighters and fighters sort of at this stage of things, six, seven fights into the UFC, the record looks good, but the results aren't necessarily things that that hold the same value anymore. And you really kind of wonder. So here's his record in the UFC. He defeated Jordan Williams by unanimous decision in Abu Dhabi on that fight card headlined by Holly Holm and Irina Aldana. Next time out, he drops a majority decision to Phil Haas in a fight where Haas started well, Imavov did well down the end, and it was what it was. 
resets after that, gets a second round TKO win over Ian Heinish, returns a few months later in New York City at UFC 286, gets a second round TKO win over Edmund Shabazian, and then goes home to Paris last September and defeats Joaquin Buckley by unanimous decision in a fight where both guys were really sort of emotional about it and fought outside of the normal scope of who and what they are, but he still got the victory. And then, of course, in January, loses to Sean Strickland as they set off the top. So while the the results and the actual win-loss is pretty solid, it's 4-2 and two in the UFC, it's 12-4 and four overall, he's lost the one that matters the most. And there was another loss in there as well to Phil Hawes, who is a guy that has been inconsistent throughout his UFC career. And so I just wonder, facing a dude in Chris Curtis that is 35, that has all the experience in the world, that is essentially, truthfully, playing with house money at this point. Because this is a dude that was ready to walk away and hang him up and be done, and came back a couple times and then fatefully raised his hand to fight Phil Haas, of all people, on a day's notice, eventually gets that fight in New York City, knocks him out, and away we go. Chris Curtis is now almost two years on the UFC roster when not long before that he was ready to be done and he was going to have to deal with this dream never came true. So he's just rolling. He's in the top 15. Things are good. He's fine. He's happy being this dude. Can Nasruddin Amavov get this victory that writes the ship, gets him moving in the right direction again and shows that my optimism in him and the optimism of many people in him wasn't misplaced. Move to the flyweight division, Miranda Maverick versus Jasmine, Jazdavisius. The question here, can Maverick have a statement victory? So I believe that Miranda Maverick is one of the top emerging talents in the UFC. I think she is a part of a group of fighters in the flyweight division that are going to be perennial contenders and fixtures in the top 15 for a very, very long time. I think she is already there. She is currently ranked number 15. That's on the strength of a four and two record in the UFC. Two wins, two losses, two victories coming into this one against Jazz Divisius. And she's only 25. And this is the thing that really really piques my interest about this fight. Stylistically, I think this lines up very well for Miranda Maverick. She is the more experienced. She is the more physical. She is the more athletic fighter of the two. The areas where Jazz Davisius is best, primarily wrestling and grappling, Miranda Maverick is great there. Very competent, very capable there. Physicality, I think, will be a big thing in this fight. And I really do like the fact and value the fact that she is hooked up with Elliot Marshall over these last three fights. Now, the first one was UFC 269 against Aaron Blanchfield. It didn't go well. It was very early into their partnership. I think we've seen in the two fights since the impact Elliot has had of working with her. So that's a second round finish of Sabina Mazo and then a dominant decision win over Shana Young last time out in November. And it's that fight with Young that sort of leads me to my question today because going into that one, if you remember from back in the severe picks and plays days, that was a big outlay 
that did not cash that led to a very poor night in terms of wagers. I thought she would go out there and run through Shana Young. That did not happen. She won the fight, won the fight handily, unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. But it wasn't the real like, oh yeah, Miranda Ma- remember Miranda Maverick's a problem kind of performance that I was expecting, that I think maybe even she was expecting of herself. But I think we might see that this weekend. This is an opportunity for her to face someone that's going to have not only partisan crowd behind her because Jazz Davisius, obviously a Canadian fighter, but is coming off a good win last time out. Her loss to Natalia Silva has aged very, very well at the time. I think a lot of us, myself very much included, looked at it and thought, huh, okay, maybe Jazz isn't somebody. Now we see that Natalia Silva is absolutely a top 15 fighter, if not a top 10, if not a top five fighter in this division. So that sort of ages up well and holds up well. But I think there's a little bit of this fight that as the division and as some of those names continue to move forward, not that there's pressure on Miranda Maverick, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is a little self-driven pressure, a little self-driven I need to make a statement here to show everybody that it's not just these other girls. It's very much me as well. Move to the bantamweight division. Eamon Zahabi versus Ricky Ling. My question is, what can we expect from Eamon Zahabi? So, obviously, I had Eamon on a conversation with last week for a nearly 90-minute conversation. It was fantastic. Please go check that out. Give that a listen if you have not. The reason I ask what can we expect is that Eamon Zahabi is 35 and he sort of fights once a year. And I can say that as a friend. I could say that as, I mean, he said it himself on the show. And it's a piece of this that's just interesting to me. And it's a piece of this that has always fascinated me about Eamon during his career. Because I very much understand, as we discussed on the program, the struggles of getting those opportunities as he was a young fighter, a developing fighter, trying to get those fights and get those reps that build him up and move him forward. Because coming from TriStar, carrying the Zahabi last name, having the rep that he has, people have seen him cornering in the UFC, makes those things difficult. And so he had stretches where it was several months and longer than you would like as a young fighter trying to get moving between fights, right? He said it on the show. He fought at Slam 1, which was November 30th, 2012. His next fight wasn't until March 5th, 2014. He then delays until November 2014. Relatively quick turnaround to March 2015, October 2015, March 2016. But then we just started hitting one-year gaps in the UFC, right? It was 11 months between his last regional win and his UFC debut, his victory over Reginaldo Vieira. Turned around, fought in New York City, lost to Ricardo Ramos. Year and a half before Vince Morales. Another nearly two years until Draco Rodriguez. Another 18 months, 17 months until Ricky Tercios. And now we're 11 months again. And for... As much as I know he is training, as much as I know he is a 
devout martial artist and will be as prepared as possible. He's also a 35 year old man. And at a certain point, those things catch up to you. It's not just about the mileage and the lack of, of punishment you've taken over the career. It's that you haven't been competing. And in the time since your last fight, the guy you're standing in with has gone out and won two fights. And those things just, those things just matter to me, or it's, it's only one, but he's fought twice. Auriculing fought twice last year. He's fought three times, four times since coming into the UFC just over two years ago. Whereas since April, 2021, Eamon Zahavi has fought once. And so in the span of time that Eamon has logged one win, Auriculing has won, has earned two wins and fought, fought four times. And those things just, for me, they feel like they are important factors. They feel like they are elements that impact these fights. And I just want to see if that's the case. I hope for my friend that it's not, that it has no impact, that he comes out and he carries this momentum that he's built with the wins over Draco Rodriguez and Ricky Tercios into a three-fight winning streak and further opportunities and ideally, hopefully, quicker returns to action because I would love to see him compete more. I want to see him get out there and compete, but I want to see what these continued extended breaks have done in terms of slowing down the momentum a little bit and whether it sort of catches up with him here. Featherweight division, Kyle Nelson takes on Blake Builder. My question is, can Builder take the next step? So this fight is one of those matchups where I don't think people will necessarily look at Kyle Nelson and think, man, this is a this is a big win. This is a good, good potential win because his record in the UFC is not particularly good. He has struggled to find success. He has one win in five opportunities. Sorry, six opportunities. He's won four and one. But it is a step up in competition. It is a fight against a guy that has 19 pro fights. And has been in there with some good competition. Regardless of the fact that he hasn't gotten the results. Kyle Nelson has been in there with Diego Fajaya. With Billy Quarantillo. With Jai Herbert. With Duho Choi. All of whom are more experienced, more seasoned, more polished than the guys that Blake Builder has beaten. Now, to date, Builder hasn't lost. 8-0-1 in his pro career, coming off a unanimous decision win in Australia against Shane Young. Knocked down and choked out Alex Morgan on the Contender Series before that, a fellow, another Canadian, and fought good competition in his last couple fights in CFFC. But this is a step up. This is getting in there against a guy that is significantly bigger than him. Very large for the featherweight division is Kyle Nelson, 5'11", and a, and a very big dude. This weight cut is tough on Kyle Nelson. He fought up at lightweight a couple of times because this weight cut is tough. And so I want to see if this undefeated fighter, who is already 32 years old, he'll be 33 next month, like literally a month from now, Blake Builder is 33 and so can he sort of get this rolling? Not necessarily in the like the window is closing sense because when you've 
gone undefeated in nine straight professional bouts and had a great amateur career, an undefeated amateur career at that, you clearly have some, some space and some room that you could develop this and it could be more. But if it's coming, it's kind of got to come. And that's what these fights are to me, right? Now that you're here, now that you've gotten here, how quickly can you parlay that? How quickly can you show us that you're ready to go forward into something bigger than this? Kyle Nelson is the guy you beat if you are someone that is going to move forward. And we're going to find out on Saturday if Blake Builder is that dude. Shift to the flyweight division. David Dvorak against Stefan Ursig. My question is, can Dvorak bounce back? So David Dvorak is a guy that I was very high on and remain, truthfully, quite high on. 20-5 and five overall, but he's lost his last two fights. And very similar, I think, to Dan Ige. I look at it and I go, look, if you're going to fault a dude for losing to Matias Nicolau and Manel Cape, that's, that's tough grading to me. Now, the flip side of that is that he won his first three UFC fights. He was 20 and three. He was on this big, long winning streak. And then he got in there with top 10 competition and he faltered and faltered bad. Like Nicolau dominated him. Manel Cape kind of played with his food a little bit, but had the opportunities to dominate him and didn't take them. And so I honestly think against a short notice, zero pressure, make the best of this opponent in Ursig. This is an important fight for David Dvorak. I think he's somebody that can get back to being maybe not necessarily a title challenger, but very much a, a Dan Ige type in this division. Maybe even more of a, a Jeremy Stevens type in this division where it's just outside of the, of the top five Ige right now outside of the top 10, but he's got to do it Saturday. Ersig is a guy. And I talked to Chris Reeve, a terrific uh, journalist from New Zealand who covers the sport. And he said, look, he's a, he's a terrific grappler. He's attacking stuff. It's not just rear naked chokes and guillotines. He's got the full complement. He's going to be an interesting fighter brought into the UFC. He's on a nice run of success. This is a good matchup. It is a, as I said, there's no risk here for Ersig. There's no like, you lose this one, fine. I lost to a top 10 dude on short notice. We can reset and move forward and still have a great career. But if you're David Dvorak, originally scheduled to face Matt Schnell, you get this newcomer who was supposed to fight a couple weeks ago and so has had to try to maintain and cycle back in here. You lose this one, that's going to tell us something more than the other two. And I want to see if he can avoid that. We get to the opener, Diana Belbitza and Maria Oliveira. And my question is simply, which of these two women can get a very much needed victory? I think Diana Belbitza is better than her record in the UFC indicates. So she is another one of these fighters that is one in three in the UFC. I thought she won the fight with Gloria DePaula. I thought she fought Molly McCann, relatively competitive, loses that fight for not just for grabbing the fence, but grabbed the fence and, and lost a point in that fight. The Leanna Jojua fight is one of those ones that is the all-time fight IQ head scratcher. Beating her up on the feet, decides to go to the ground and gets herself armbarred. But she's also somebody 
that I always have to remind myself is only 26 years old. Turns 27 later this month, trains at House of Champions alongside of Kyle Nelson, alongside of Mike Ballot, alongside of Jasmine Jazdavisius. The whole crew is out here this week. The whole team is here. She is surrounded by her team, her squad, her people. And is it just that she's going to finally hit a little spot here in a matchup that is a coin flip fight and really start taking a little bit of a step forward and, and getting another victory and turning one and three in the UFC to she's won two of her last three in the UFC. Maria Oliveira is someone that has struggled in terms of consistency in the UFC. She earned a split decision win over Gloria DePaula in between losses to Baby Shark, Tabitha Ricci, and Vanessa Demopoulos. For me, she is always and forever going to be the woman who ran away from Marina Rodriguez on the all-Brazilian version of Contender Series back in the summer of 2018. Now, let me be clear. I understand why she ran away from Marina Rodriguez, who was whipping that ass, and I wouldn't want her kicking my ass either. However, you're a professional cage fighter. And unless you are wildly compromised, it is not a good look that you turn and run away and go, nah, I'm out. Now, I don't remember. Maybe it's on me. She took a year in between, so likely that there was some kind of of injury there. But it's a thing I can't shake. It's a visual I can't shake every time I hear the name Maria Oliveira. And so these two women, again, similar to the Elise Reed Jinhu Frey fight last last weekend. Not necessarily fighting for their job. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to put that on them. But fighting to show us something. Fighting to to show that there is something here that that keeps them around. That makes you think, okay, let me see something else. Not that they're going to become contenders. Not that they're going to become champions. These are two fighters that are going to be mid-pack and below in this weight class. I've accepted it. I don't know if they have, but you should. And I just want to see if one of them can come out here and make a statement and show I'm better than what my results have shown thus far. That is it for the show. Thank you for tuning in. I am going to be back in Vancouver bright and early tomorrow. I will record 10 things while I am there. That show, like this show, will be audio only because I don't want to do not as great quality video on the laptop from the midst of the media area where there's elevators and escalators and people and all like that. But I will be here with something because I want to continue to put this out. As I said in the notes, shouts to Scroobius Pip for the lovely beautiful comments today on Twitter. I appreciate you, my guy. I hope you are well. You are an absolute legend. To everybody tuning in, thank you. To everybody that subscribes, thank you. I appreciate you, whether it's free, five bucks or 50 bucks. You are all wonderful human beings. To my guys at One Bone, what up? The gear has been worn every day this week. Going to be repping the polos on Friday. Going to be repping a polo on Saturday. I will hook you up with pictures. Please, if you do check out those fellas and you and you want to grab some stuff, which I strongly recommend, use the promo code ESK20 at checkout. My initials ESK, the number 20, to get yourself 20% off on your gear. You will love it. Trust me when I tell you that. 
most importantly, know that I love you. Know that I appreciate you. Know that we are here for you. And I hope you are looking forward to this fight card. We'll talk to you tomorrow.